In retrospect, this meeting's principal importance is that it seems to have been the first occasion at which Bellock and G.K. Chesterton were present under the same roof at the same time. The immediate impact of Bellock's oratory on the 25-year-old Chesterton was evident in a letter that Chesterton wrote to Francis Blogg, his fiance. You hate political speeches. Therefore, you would not have hated Bellock's. The moment he began to speak, one felt lifted out of the stuffy fumes of forty times repeated arguments into really thoughtful and noble and original reflections on history and character. When I tell you that he talked about, one, the English aristocracy, two, the effects of agricultural depression on their morality, three, his dog, four, the Battle of Sadoa, five, the Puritan Revolution in England, six, the luxury of the Roman Antonines, seven, a particular friend of his, who had, by an infamous job, received a political post he was utterly unfit for, eight, the comic papers of Australia, nine, the mortal sins of the Catholic Church. You may have some conception of the amount of his space that was left for the motion before the house. It lasted for half an hour, and I thought it was five minutes. Chesterton was clearly bowled over by Bellock's performance, feeling the force of his words like a cavalry charge. He obviously detected, amid the medley of themes upon which Bellock had touched, the presence of a kindred spirit. According to W. R. Titterson, a friend in latter years of both men, Chesterton had written a letter to a mutual friend, a discerning friend, presumably shortly after the meeting in McGregor's studio, saying that he would like to meet Bellock. An element of mystery surrounds the identity of this mutual friend. From the conflicting reports of Bellock's and Chesterton's first meeting, it is unclear whether they were introduced by E.C. Bentley or Lucian Oldershaw. Oldershaw claimed the distinction for himself and put its immense importance into perspective. I lost Gilbert first when I introduced him to Bellock, next when he married Francis, and finally when he joined the Catholic Church. I rejoiced, though perhaps with a maternal sadness, at all these fulfillments. The most famous account of that fabled first meeting was given by Chesterton in his autobiography. He had arranged to meet Oldershaw in a little French restaurant in Soho, the Mont Blanc in Girard Street, one of the delightful little dens off Leicester Square, where in those days a man could get half a bottle of perfectly good red wine for sixpence. Oldershaw entered, followed by a sturdy man with a stiff straw hat of the period tilted over his eyes, which emphasized the peculiar length and strength of his chin. He had a high-shouldered way of wearing a coat, so that it looked like a heavy overcoat, and instantly reminded me of the pictures of Napoleon, and for some vague reason, especially of the pictures of Napoleon on horseback. But his eyes, not without anxiety, had that distant keenness that is seen in the eyes of sailors. And there was even something about his walk that has been even more compared to a sailor's roll. He sat down heavily on one of the benches and began to talk at once about some controversy or other. As Bellock went on talking, he, every now and then, volleyed out very provocative parentheses on the subject of religion. All this amused me very much but I was already conscious of a curious undercurrent of sympathy with him, which many of those who were similarly amused did not feel. 
It was from that dingy little Soho cafe, as from a cave of witchcraft, that there emerged the quadrupled, the twiform monster Mr. Shaw has nicknamed the Chester Bellock. A lesser-known account is given by Chesterton in his introduction to Hilaire Bellock, the man and his work, in which Bellock is described as arriving with his arms and pockets stuffed with French nationalist and French atheist newspapers. When I first met Bellock, he remarked to the friend who introduced us that he was in low spirits. His low spirits were and are much more uproarious and enlivening than anybody else's high spirits. He talked into the night and left behind in it a glowing track of good things. What he brought into our dream was his Roman appetite for reality and for reason and action, and when he came to the door there entered with him the smell of danger.